Our first Bible reading is Exodus chapter 40. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil, and anoint the tabernacle, and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel 
throughout all their journeys. The word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray as we stand. Father in heaven, uh, we just heard in the gospel reading that Jesus Christ, your eternal son, uh, uh, came and gave us, those who trust in him, the right to become your children, to become members by adoption of the family of the blessed Trinity. Uh, and by saying that, uh, we are speaking and giving thanks for something that is way beyond our capacity to understand it. And I expect that it will take all eternity for us to exhaust uh, the treasure that is bound up in that simple statement. And yet we honor you and we bless you and we, gr and we ask that we might know you more today that you might show us something more of who you are, that you might bind us more closely, that you would reach into our hearts that are slow to believe and quick to disbelieve and quick to doubt. And will you address the specific questions that hold us back? And will you tear down the obstacles to deeper intimacy with you? And will you bind us by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might find ourselves within the cloud of your glory? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, friends. Um, hi. Oh, my goodness. Deary me. Um, everybody on the video, you got to come. They, come on in. The water's great. Um, now, we are finishing uh, Exodus today, and so we're going to be looking at that long reading from Exodus uh, 40. Let me try to set it up. Um, over the last several weeks, one of the things we've been saying repeatedly is that God's best gift is always himself. Um, let's say that again. God's best gift is always what? himself. That's right. Now, what I want to show you today is that it takes the entire Trinity, each person of the Trinity working together in order for God to give us his best gift, which is always, there we go. Good work. Okay. Now here's why I'm, I want to show you this. On the one hand today is Trinity Sunday. So uh, every year on this day, Christians um, go back over our most unique and most confusing doctrine, right? Um, we believe that there is one God, not three, but one God. And yet, in the same time, in a mysterious way, there is one God in three eternal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, that is more than a strange math problem. What I want to show you today is that mysterious as the doctrine of the Trinity is, and it is mysterious, it takes all three persons working together in order for God to give us his best gift, which is always... There we go. Now, that's, we're going to say that. And on the other hand, we're going to explore that by looking at the tabernacle. The tabernacle? Yes, the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? Well, a tabernacle is that thing that Moses was uh, busy building in our reading from Exodus chapter 40. And ex the, a tabernacle is basically this. A tabernacle is a temple or a tent, a tent, which is also a, a temple. And what's a temple? A temple is, in a sense, an embassy. You know how uh, if we go over here to Midtown uh, East, there's a bunch of consulates there, right? And they're all gathered right around the UN. A consulate or an embassy is a little bit of territory that uh, where a foreign country has sovereignty. So if you go to the consulate, you go to an embassy, you you know, if you go to the Nigerian embassy or whatever, that's a little space uh, in the United States where uh, Nigeria has sovereignty. Well, that's kind of what the temple or the tabernacle was that Moses was building in the first reading. It was a little place, little piece of property where you could go 
and find God's embassy on earth where you could go and you could meet with God, at least in the limited way you could go there and meet with God. Now, why is that important? Well, God's best gift is always himself. And the tabernacle is where God gives his best gift. It's the place where you could go where you could meet with God. So it's super important because it's the place where you get God's best gift. Now, we're going to talk about the Trinity. We're going to talk about the tabernacle. And I can hear somebody saying, wait a second. You are telling me that we are going to talk about the Trinity and the tabernacle, two super obscure religious things that only religious geeks like. Well, and I can imagine somebody saying, what does that have to do with me? Great question. Thank you for asking. It has this to do with you. If you grasp the Trinity and you grasp the tabernacle, you will also grasp why it is you can trust God. Why do I say that? Well, if you're going to trust anybody, you need to know at least two things. You need to know who they are, and you need to know what they're, what they're on about, what they want, what they're after, right? You, 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 typically, you don't trust strangers, at least not too much, right? You got to know who the person is in order to, to trust them. But on the other hand, you also need to know what's their agenda. What are they on about? What are they after? What do they want their relationship with you for? Who, who is the person and what is their agenda? You got to understand those two things in order to trust somebody. And that's what the Trinity and the tabernacle give us. If you understand the Trinity, then you know something about who God is, not just the imaginary projections of our highest values, but actually who God really is. And on the other hand, if you understand the tabernacle, you'll understand what God wants, what he's after, what he's after in your life, no matter what your circumstances are. Grasp the tabernacle and you know God's agenda for your life. So. We're going to look at the Trinity, we're going to look at the tabernacle, and we're going to uh, come to a deeper sense of why you can trust God. Here's what I want to show you. When God gives us his best gift, the Father has a plan. The Son does all the heavy lifting, and the Holy Spirit is the gift itself. Let me show you. First of all, the Father has a plan. Take a look at the long reading from uh, Exodus. Now, the thing about this story is it is the climax of the book of Exodus, and yet it is a rarely told story. You know, like typically we think about the Red Sea, the Passover, stuff like that. Those are swashbuckling, gripping narratives. Um, but this is in uh, arguably the, the climax of the story of Exodus, and yet it is rarely told. And the reason for that is it is a construction story. It's a construction story, right? It's, it's a dude building something which is cool, but it rarely gets told. Um, but what I want you to see is look at verse 18. There's a refrain beginning in verse 18, and it's this. There's a repeated phrase that says, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now watch that phrase, as the Lord has commanded Moses. That happens seven times throughout the reading. Now, why is seven important? Well, in your mind, reach back to the very beginning of the Bible. The very first chapter of the Bible is when God creates the universe. God creates everything, and he does it in how many days? Yeah, seven. I mean, pretty much finishes up a, a day early, but it takes basically seven days, right? And on each of those days, God does all the work through commands. He commands things. Let there be light. Uh, let the sea be divided from the land and so on and so forth. God's commands are do the heavy lifting over the course of that seven days. Now, when God has finished everything in, Acts, or in Genesis chapter 1, this, in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord uh, ha, uh, builds a garden, Famously, the Garden of Eden. But the thing with the Garden of Eden, I've mentioned this before, is that the Garden of Eden is also shaped to be a temple. It's like an open-air temple. 
And the idea is in the garden, the place where God, the, place, the garden was to be the place where God and God's people could meet together, could live together and rest together in a bond of intimacy and love. Now, what that means is that the very beginning of the Bible teaches us that God had created the whole world to be a space. He designed it to be a space where God could give his best gift, where God could give himself to his people in love and in intimacy. Now, that's a great beginning into the story. If you know the rest of it, which many of us do, very soon it all goes wrong. Because what happens is humanity, although we uh, enjoy at the beginning this intimacy with God for which we were created, but instead we reject that, we divorce God, we check out of the relationship, the Bible calls it sin, and there's this uh, dismantling of the garden. There's a dismantling of the original temple. And at that moment, it looks like God's plan to live in a bond of love with his people, it looks like that plan is abandoned and annulled forever. Why am I saying all this? Because it'll explain why the tabernacle is so remarkably important. Because what happens in Exodus is that God originally at the beginning, you remember this, finds Israel. And when God finds Israel, Israel is enslaved in Egypt. And God rescues Israel from their enslavement in Egypt. And wonderful as that political liberation is, it's not the end of the story. God's uh, purpose and his plan is not exhausted by that political liberation. Rather, God's bigger agenda is to give himself to his people. God wants to, so to speak, undivorce himself from his people. God wants to undo our betrayal and God wants to give his best gift, which is always himself to the people of Israel. And therefore in this passage, the story of Exodus cannot be done until Moses builds the tabernacle. And in seven commands, the tabernacle is, is reconstructed and, uh, and the dismantled Eden begins to be reassembled, a place where God can give himself to his people. And all of that means that God's great plan to give himself to his people and live in love and intimacy with his, with his people, that plan is not it's not been thwarted. It's still in effect. Now, zoom out and put this in the context of the New Testament now. Because when you get to the New Testament, you find out that God's big plan for the world, God's commands, God's meticulous planning for the world that you see in, uh, in the tabernacle, God's plan is uniquely associated with the person of God the Father. I could show you this in various places. God the Father, we find out in the New Testament, is the one who was particularly responsible for planning the world, and he was particularly the one who, uh, who uh, hatched the big purpose and the big plot, so to speak. It was the same purpose that he had in Eden, is the same purpose that he displayed when he designed the tabernacle, and it's this, God's, the Father's purpose and his plan. And the reason behind all of his commandments is to design a world to be a place where he can give himself to his people. Okay. What does it matter for you and me? Many reasons, but let me tell you one. This explains why it is we can trust God's commandments. 
Uh, one of the most common struggles that people have is um, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, is uh, can I really trust the commandments? Like the commandments in the Bible, the moral commandments, are they good or are they just kind of a religious power play to restrict me, to control me, and to push me down? Can you identify with that? Well, think about the tabernacle. Because God is meticulous in his planning and his commands for the tabernacle. And all of God's commands to Moses for building this, uh, this tabernacle are specifically designed to create, they, they, the commands have a purpose. They're designed to create a space where God and God's people can meet together and enjoy one another. And the way, different way to put that is that God's commands to Moses are all meant to facilitate relationship and love. Love is the animating center of all of God's commands in the tabernacle, but they are also the animating center of all of the Father's commands in the moral life. God's moral commands, the Father's moral commands are not arbitrary, they're not random, they're not cold, they're not cruel, they are expressions of God's love. They're how God is teaching you about how the world is meant to function. They're the Father teaching you how to walk with him in love moment by moment and breath by breath. The Father's commands are how he's training you to enjoy his best gift, which is always himself. Okay. The tabernacle shows us something about the Father's plan, but the tabernacle also shows us that, the, that God the Son, God the Son does all the heavy lifting to give us his best gift. Let me show you. Look back at the reading, and this time focus not so much on the Lord's commands, focus on Moses' obedience. Um, if you read through this passage, did you notice this? Man, Moses has a lot of work to do. Did you notice that? And like, I hope he had a team, but dearie me, it looks like he's doing all the heavy lifting. And the emphasis in this reading is that Moses is obeying the Lord just meticulously. He does everything he's supposed to do. And it's through that obedience that the tabernacle gets built and that obedience allows Israel to enjoy the presence of God, at least in a limited way. Now, put that in the context of Genesis. Because remember, Adam and Eve, when they're in that garden, that open air temple, they had privileged access to God. But then, do you remember? They divorced themselves from God. They rejected God. We call it sin. And in re rejecting God and through their disobedience, they dismantle that open air temple. And here the opposite is happening. Because Moses' obedience means that this little embassy of Eden can be reconstructed so that God and God's people can, at least in a limited way, they can come back together. Now, there's a super important pattern that you need to grasp in order to grasp the rest of the Bible. Notice this. Moses obeys, but the whole nation of Israel gets the benefit. It's not through corporate obedience, but through the obedience of one that the benefit is achieved. See, Israel, if you, you know this from the story of, of Exodus, Israel's corporate obedience is super unimpressive. Remember the golden calf? That was not that long ago. But here, Moses obeys. And based on his individual obedience, the whole nation gets the benefit of the tabernacle. 
Now, that's the way priests are supposed to function in the Old Testament. A priest was meant to do for their people what the people could not do for themselves so that the people could, at least in a limited way, approach God. However, slow down and look at verse 35. I've said in a limited way a couple times. Because here's the funny thing about this reading. When God actually moves in, when Moses finishes the work and, and the movers show up, so to speak, and God like actually takes possession, Moses is excluded. Do you notice that? Moses can't go in. There's still a distance between God and God's people. Why? Why is Moses excluded? Well, it's a sign that the that the work of the tabernacle, there's something that is not yet entirely complete. Moses had completed everything he could, but there was still something left to be done. The distance between God and God's people have not, has not entirely been bridged. And that brings us to Jesus. Goodness, Jim, we're going all over the Bible. Yes, we are. That brings us to Jesus. Why? Did you notice the second reading in John's gospel? Or the second reading today from John's gospel. In verse 14... It says that the word was made flesh and, keyword, dwelt among us. See the word dwelt? That means tabernacled among us. And part of John's point in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ came to complete the work of the tabernacle. Jesus Christ came to obey the Father's plan way more perfectly and more uh, infinitely than Moses ever could. Moses did a good job, but Jesus had to finish the job so that the final gap between God and God's people could be bridged. And just like Moses obeyed and Israel got the benefit, so now Jesus obeys. And through his perfect obedience, his people, everyone who is united to him by faith, gain the benefit. Do you see how it works? And Jesus Christ's obedience reached its beautiful climax on the ugly cross. In the tabernacle, right at the heart of the tabernacle is the sacrifice. There are a bunch of different sacrifices. They, some of them did different things. But one of the types of sacrifice is that um, uh, the priest would, would, so to speak, confess the sins of the people of Israel over the animal. And then they would be sent off, sent off into the desert or they would be killed. And when Jesus was on the cross, he was taking upon himself voluntarily the sins, the betrayal, everything that we've ever done that has dismantled our relationship with God. Jesus Christ took upon himself the penalty for all of that voluntarily, willfully, so that when Jesus died, uh, all the consequences of our betrayal died with him. Now, that's an astonishingly hard thing to grasp. But consider this. There is no love that is more pure than sacrificial love. And in Jesus Christ, God in Christ sacrifices himself so that everything we've done to dismantle our relationship with him can be rebuilt. Now... When we say that God gives himself to us as his best gift, no one would have ever dreamt that that self-giving would be to such an extent that God in Christ would sacrifice his own life for us. But that's exactly what you get when you look at Jesus. Jesus obeyed perfectly 
and we get the benefit so that the mission of the tabernacle can be complete. And he did all of that so that he could reassemble our relationship with God in the words of John in our reading so that we could be counted the children of God. Jesus did all the heavy lifting. The father planned the gift. Jesus does all the heavy lifting for the gift. But then thirdly and finally, the Holy Spirit is the gift itself. Go back to Exodus. Do you see when the cloud rests on the tabernacle? If you're, the deeper you are in the, in the understanding of the Bible, the more your breath will be taken away with that image. Because that cloud, that is not a meteorological cloud. That's not a weather cloud. That's the cloud of God's glory. It's an image of God's pristine, perfect, unfettered presence. And I already pointed out how Moses couldn't enter the cloud. He was excluded. But when you get to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and in the uh, book of, of Acts, Jesus, when he, after he dies and he, ascend, and he rises again, he ascends into heaven. And do you remember there's a cloud in that scene? Jesus ascends and he enters the cloud. And that wasn't that he just got lost in the meteorological cloud because it was a cloudy day. What that means is that he entered right into the presence of God forever. And remember that Jesus is a priest. And what a priest does, he does on behalf of his people. So that when Jesus entered into the cloud and Jesus entered into the glory of God, what that means is that he was opening a way for that all, so that all of us could enter that cloud with him. And that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. And there they began to taste in an unprecedented way the sweetness of intimacy with God as their father. This is the sweetness of, of God's fatherly affection that previously only Jesus knew. Now they got to enjoy that as well, which is to say this, they became a tabernacle. They became the people, the place where God and God's people could meet together. So Emmanuel, who is God and what does he want and can you trust him? God is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all perfectly working together to give God his best gift, which is always, that is what he wants. And whatever you're going through, wherever you're at, God desires to give himself to you. That's his big aim. And I know that some of us are in great difficulty and great, we're struggling and we're doubting and we're suffering and we've had a horrible many months. But if that's where you're at, then I know that in those moments, it, those are moments when we begin to say, God, where in the world are you? And where have you been? And what are you doing? And are you there? And can I trust you? And if that's where you're at, I want you to remember the book of Exodus. I want you to remember the story of Israel because God met Israel when they were enslaved. And when Israel was enslaved, they asked the same question, where in the world is the God of Abraham? And it ends up that we find out that God was attending, God was listening, and God was cut to the heart with their pain. And that's the God that you belong to. He is cut to the heart and he has not left you alone. But the God of Exodus attended to the voice of their cries and then God got involved and God took control of the narrative and God intervened and God moved literally seas and, and displaced superpowers to call out for a people for himself. And then God led Israel into the desert. And once again, they said, can God take care of me in the desert? And God once again comes and he feeds them and he gives them water moment by moment and breath by breath care. That's the God you belong to. 
and then they're having received God's moment by moment and breath by breath care, even then they rebel against him and they dismantle what, what relationship God had begun to rebuild through their sin. And that's what we do too. And that's what you've done. And that's why the guilt of your heart makes you afraid of whether or not God will ever forgive you and receive you back. But once again, God in Exodus reaches out and reaches and draws his people back into a reconciled relationship with him. That's the God that you serve and don't forget it. Who is your God? A God who has done all of that, but all of that towards a greater goal. And the greater goal is that God wants to give you himself. And God wants to bring you into the cloud of his glory. And God wants to make us to be a tabernacle. That's where God is taking Emmanuel. That's where God is taking you. And you can trust him. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.